0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Joanne Yao, author of The Ideal River, How Control of Nature Shaped the International Order, published this year by Manchester University Press. Dr. Yao, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Okay, so I'm a senior lecturer in international relations at Queen Mary uh, University of London. Um, And before I started working Queen Mary. I was at Durham University and then before that I finished my PhD at the London School of Economics here in London. Um, I specialize in international relations, environmental history and the history of global governance and international institutions. Um, This book was based on a PhD, my PhD project uh, that I completed at the London School of Economics Uh, and I came up to the topic in a roundabout way. I didn't actually start my PhD meaning to write a book about rivers. Um, I actually wanted to write a bigger, more ambitious uh, pr- a book about global oceans and international norms surrounding oceans. Um, but as any overeager PhD student uh, would perhaps come to, um, I arrived at the London School of Economics and my supervisor looked at this sprawling, ambitious project and said, you're never going to finish this project. Why don't you try something smaller? Uh, And in this case, something smaller uh, came to be international rivers or transboundary rivers. Um, And as I started getting uh, sinking my teeth into the material, I found that international rivers had a lot to say about international relations. And I was really happy that I had ended up on this path than what I started with.
0: Yeah, so as you said, this is a a book about international organizations, uh, and you're kind of locating their origins in the 1800s with these commissions developed to manage certain uh, rivers. So what can we learn about today's international organizations, which we have, you know, a huge number. I don't even want to put a number to it. We got got all these things going. What can we learn about today's international organizations from looking into the past like you do in your
1: Thank you very much for the question. Uh, So, yes, as as you said, in the book, I focus on the origins of international organizations. So I focus on the very first a few international organizations or intergovernmental organizations that were created in the 19th century off the backs of um, a few international, very important international conferences. Um, And when we look at current international affairs, the current international order, um, and sort of the institutions, the norms, the laws that structure the current international order, um, we can locate those back to the 19th century and really um, sort of global shifts in power and technology and globalization that happened in the 19th century. And so I think it's very fruitful for us to understand um, international governments, international organizations, international order, international cooperation by looking up back to these forces in the 19th century that really created the order we have today. In particular, uh, my book focuses on sort of environmental themes and the relationship between human society, and in this case, international society, and the natural world. Uh, And One of my arguments is that that relationship has been key since the very beginning of international organizations, since the very first inklings that we as an international society need international organizations. And we... you know when we talk about environmental politics in international relations today, we kind of think it's it's a more recent uh, sort of concern, uh, at least reaching back to maybe the mid or late twentieth century. but what my book tries to show is that interrelationship between nature and international society goes back further uh, to the nineteenth century to the origins of the current international order as we have it today. and Part of this is also locating um, the beginnings of international organizations in imp- what I call imperial hierarchies. Uh, so ideas of the standards of civilization, which I mentioned in my book, and also hierarchies between who is more civilized, who is seen as backwards, who is seen as barbarian.
0: Okay. And you're, you're looking really at, at three main rivers here. We have the Rhine, the Danube and the Congo. So can you say a bit about why you chose those three rivers to focus on and kind of how they compare and contrast with each other?
1: Okay, Uh, so the choice for these rivers were in many ways set uh, by following the progression, if you will, of these international organizations or international institutions that were created. So the first river I talk about in my book, the Rhine River, uh, the Rhine River Commission was created in 1815 with the Congress of Vienna. So that you know, oftentimes is seen as the first intergovernmental organization where uh, different governments come together in an organization to look after um, this transboundary geography and to manage it and to ensure that it flowed correctly and facilitated trade. Uh, So that's why uh, I chose the Rhine. Uh, The next commission that was created with the 1856 uh, Paris Conference to end the Crimean War, was the Danube Commission, the European Commission of the Danube. Um, And that is often seen as the first international organization where the states that sit on the commission aren't just the states that line the riverbanks, if you will, the riparian states. But outside states also sat on this commission. So Britain and France sat on this commission without having any territories on the Danube River. So in many ways, this is seen as the first truly international organization uh, where states from a continent away, sat on a commission to have authority over a geographic space um, on the other side of the continent. Uh, And then the last river, the Congo River, um, there was an attempt to create an international commission on the Congo River at the 1885 uh, Berlin Conference. Um, Now, this commission never left the paper on which it was written. So the outcome of the Berlin Conference had said, we were going to create this commission, we were going to jointly manage the space to ensure that the space is neutral and civilized, and yet it was never created. So that aspect of the book looks at, well, first, why did we think we could create such a commission there? And second, what happened? Why did it fail? Um, in terms of the differences between these rivers. So my book really draws out what I call the geographical imaginaries um, that animate our thinking around rivers. So each of these rivers, I argue, had a slightly different kind of tinge in our collective geographical imaginaries. Uh, So that very much for the Rhine River, it was envisioned as this collective European highway that was going to facilitate European commerce and European civilization, the Danube had a a slightly different identity in the collective geographical imagination, that it was a connecting river that connects the heart of Europe to the near periphery um, in the Ottoman and Russian lands at the time. So this was very much envisioned as a river that will help uh, bring civilization from the heart of Europe, out to the periphery. Um, At the same time, in this imaginary, it's very interesting to see anxieties and fears about reversal. So this idea that civilization traveled from the heart of Europe outwards, but also that might be reversed, how um, danger or barbarism might travel from the outside in. Uh, and then finally, the Congo River, uh, the geographical imaginary I draw in here is this imperial river, so it was viewed as this colonial river that flowed through a conceptually empty space. Um, it wasn't empty in the sense that they thought nobody lived there or they thought that nothing was there, but it was conceptually empty in that uh, the diplomats that tried to create this commission, envisioned it as empty of institutions that really mattered. And therefore, they can bring their own model institutions into this space. Uh, So in that way, these three rivers all have their own identities, characteristics, if you will.
0: Okay, so I want to now ask a little bit about each of the, the three rivers. You know, there's way more in the book than we'll talk about here on the podcast, but just to kind of dip into the story of each of them. Uh, So starting with the Rhine, uh, one of your arguments is that the system that was set up in 1815 was a combination of some new ideas, new ways of thinking about rivers, but also a return to some of the old uh, ideas or old ways of dealing with rivers from before the Napoleonic Wars. So can you unpack that idea of the sort of old and new coming together uh, in the Rhine?
1: Yeah, sure. I think, um, I guess what's interesting is the historiography surrounding the Congress of Vienna, uh, this uh, moment in 1815, um, does tend towards perhaps two arguments. One, that uh, 1815 was something brand new in European history, in the history of the world even, uh, that before that, uh, a a certain type of international system existed and after that there was a system of collaboration between the great powers, balance of power system uh, that was really um, a departure from what was there before. Uh, Some of the other historiography around uh, the Congress of Vienna was that it was really um, a restoration. Of society to what had been before Napoleon sort of came through and upended European society. Uh, this idea that it was a restoration of the, the powerful, right? It was a restoration of uh, the state system trying to uh, restore uh, society um, to the hierarchies that it had seen before before Napoleon came through and upended those hierarchies. Uh, so in my study of the Rhine Commission specifically and the creation of the Rhine Commission, I saw both of those strands at work. Um, in, in some ways, uh, this was a new idea, right? Uh, an international commission to manage a transboundary geography uh, was not really around before eighteen fifteen, and so um, and my argument has to do with how this commission um depended on ideas about the importance of commerce to European civilization, uh, the importance of creating uh, that the river should create value and should be an economic highway that took goods to market and should be an efficient economic highway, unlike what it had been before. So this is this idea that the commission is new and it was a new way of thinking, a new way of doing business um, in European politics. Uh, but In looking at the material, um, there was a lot of restoration uh, to be said here. So actually, if you look into the nitty-gritty of the history, um, when Napoleon took over uh, most of the territory that uh, encompassed the Rhine River, he had set up his own commission, to to manage the river. And this commission had been much more liberal than the commission that kind of was reverted to in 1815. It had much more power than the commission that had been reverted to in 1815. So in some ways, um, if you look through what the diplomats were saying, if you look at what they were intending to do, they were trying to restore European society to an equilibrium or a hierarchy uh, that they had seen before this upstart uh, Napoleon had basically messed around with everything.
0: Okay. And then moving on to the Danube, uh, Count Dracula makes a surprise Mm -hmm. appearance in your your Danube chapter. So can you talk about uh, what Dracula shows us or illustrates about the the vision that people had of the Danube?
1: Yeah, I I really like um, Dracula. And I think very much this says something about the book in that, I draw from a wide range of literature uh, to build um, this idea of a geographical imaginary or to build this uh, narrative of what these rivers were imagined to be. And I think Count Dracula is uh, very, very important for our imagination of what uh, the Danube is because Count Dracula comes from the far end of the Danube, the mouth of the Danube. Um, And in the book specifically, it refers to... um, him coming from that area, coming to Western Europe, invading Western Europe, um, both the gendered politics of it and the racial politics of it has been written about in literary studies, uh, this kind of invasion from the outside. Dr- Dracula is super interesting just because um, he's, he's a reversion of nature, right? So he's uh, he reverts. Um, he reverses time in that he doesn't never gets old, never dies. Um, and he re- reverses space in that he's invading from the outside in, so from, from the, the, the uh, near periphery into civilization. Um, and in the book Dracula, um, they chase him. Uh, back to his homeland at the very end of the book. And there is a brilliant passage where the protagonists of this novel are steaming up the Danube in a steamship and they're traveling through this uh, atmospheric imagery of fog. Um, And I think that is interesting because it draws on what travel logs and what... um, merchants who have been to uh, the far end of the Danube, that Danube Delta, have described that it was uh, full of fog. It's nauseous, right? Uh, So the the thing about the Danube Delta is it's a swampland. The Danube, rather than going straight into the sea, actually turns and slows down and loses itself in many ways um, in this swampland. And it is full of fog. It is full of mist, a mystique. And so Dracula really draws on this imagery. But I think uh, for me and for the book and for the imaginary of the Danube, Dracula really symbolizes this fear of reversal. This idea that, well, if we're not careful, civilization isn't going to flow in one direction from Europe outwards, but backwardsness or barbarity or uh, this unnatural, undead creature can invade up the river and threaten the heart of um, civilization. So very much, uh, I argue there is a sense that we're trying to control and trying to civilize the Danube Delta through uh, the creation of this international organization uh, because we needed to to prevent this reversal, prevent Dracula from invading our societies.
0: And then... uh... Move on to the Congo River. Uh, yeah, this is the Geography Channel, so I gotta ask. Any time that maps come up in the the books I'm reading here, uh, and so maps play uh, a role in the story of the Congo. So, can you talk about the way that Europeans mapped the Congo and how that influenced the agenda for the river that came about at the Berlin Conference?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think maps are incredibly important to the early history of international politics and international relations. Um, and in this case, in, in the Congo, there was very much um, a project to, to map uh, the Congo and Africa. Uh, but the, in the book, I describe this project to, to map all of Africa, really, and to make the most detailed project um, Map, mapping, drawing uh, of the Congo or, or Africa as we know it um, through uh, cartographic depictions that were scientific rather than uh, perhaps um, old world or romantic. Uh, so if we think back to old world maps, uh, they had sea creatures. If they didn't know where, what something um, what was there, they might draw in creatures or or depictions of what was there. So all of that got thrown out for a more scientific rendering of geography. Um, And I think that was very much reflected or re- reflecting, I guess, the sort of s- a more sci- scientific, supposedly scientific way of seeing politics as well and seeing how to govern spaces in the most rational, effective manner. So mapping was very much linked to the business of governance and how to govern well. Um, in, in, in the Congo, uh, very much, um, there wasn't a lot of information, or at least there wasn't a lot of what was accepted as reliable scientific information about what was along the Congo. Um, A lot of the mapping uh, based its information on Stanley and his trips at the Congo and his travel logs about what was there in the Congo and he pretty much described an emptiness. He said there wasn't much there of value uh, before the Europeans got there. And so very much you see these maps with the center pretty much missing. Um, And I don't think that the map makers thought there was nothing there and that's why they left it empty, but that there was no information about what was there that was reliable. Uh, that was up to the epistemic standards of the mappers. So, but when, I guess, this map with with the empty center was shown to the policymakers at the Berlin Conference, um, it was very much interpreted as an emptiness, right? There's nothing there, and therefore we can fill it up with all sorts of institutions and all sorts of civilizations, cities, uh, infrastructure, um, it really fed into this imaginary that this was a conceptually empty space and that we can bring all sorts of good models for governance into this space. And so I think that emptiness, while it wasn't necessarily a claim that there was nothing there, really then contributed to this idea that maybe it was empty and that we can fill it up with lots of things.
0: Yeah, I... I had heard about you know, the basics of the Berlin conference before, but I hadn't ever read about it in any detail before reading your book. And I was just kind of impressed by the audacity of them having this conference to decide what to do with this like continent. And there's only one guy that they had that had ever actually been to the places that they were negotiating over. You know, there's one explorer that had been there and, and that's the entirety of their information that they're uh, working with. Um, but I guess that's not not unusual in in these kind of colonial contexts. You know, the, yeah. the British made their whole plan for colonizing Australia on the basis of one trip by Captain Cook. So, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and I don't think um, I don't think they, they thought you know anybody needed to have gone there. I guess it. I guess what I'm trying to say is it, I don't think it crossed their minds that this was a problem. And I think that was really interesting. Not only did Only one guy uh, had really spent extensive time along the Congo that was there. And he was there as a technical expert for the American delegation. But that they didn't even think there was a problem, that they were deciding the fate of this continent. And they didn't invite anybody from there or didn't hear any voices of the peoples, which they knew were there. Uh, The the chiefs, uh, which had signed lots of treaties with them, they didn't think it was... Even a problem, even a question that ooh, maybe we should have invited some of these these chiefs, and they could have sent their emissaries. It didn't cross their minds. So I think that you know was what surprised me the most that it wasn't even a question; it wasn't even asked.
0: Yeah, and so then a theme that crops up across the the three different case studies is uh, this link between commerce and morality. That you know, there's a desire to economically develop these areas and improve them for you know trade uh, that is sort of inseparable from this idea of like the advance of civilization and moral uplift of these areas. So can you talk a bit about the, that link between commerce and morality?
1: Yeah, I think um, that link, that's what I call the double logic. of of improvement is very much core of the arguments I'm trying to make, and it, uh, I think, spans from my very first example, which has to do with um, Machiavelli and Leonardo da Vinci trying to uh, divert the Arno River outside of Florence all the way to sort of more modern day examples of trying to build mega dams um, that would improve both society um, economically and morally. I think that double logic is really key to what I'm trying uh, to argue. So in the case of the, the Arnold River, where I where I started my book, um, there were multiple reasons why... Uh, Machiavelli and Leonardo da Vinci were trying to divert this river, um, some of which had to do with military purposes and purposes of state, uh, in that um, Florence was at war with Pisa, and they thought that by diverting the river, they can deny Pisa... uh, Basically, their transportation and their communications, uh, but there was also logics about how diverting the river would benefit the countryside and control floods and improve irrigation. Um, and if you look further, part of diverting this river, this Arno River, um, from uh, away from Pisa uh, and into the sea, was sort of a, a imperial. Um, sort of mission, that if they could divert the river then they could make Florence into a port city and open it up to the possibilities of a maritime empire. So one of Florence's famous sons, Amerigo Vespucci, had just been one of the first Europeans um, to land in what is now Brazil. And in diverting this river, there are no uh, Florentine ambition looked Uh, beyond just local Italian politics to the Americas. If you take this apart, part of what they were trying to do was economic improvement. Right to control the uh, to improve uh, the countryside to improve irrigation to to improve uh, flooding. But wrapped into that logic um, is also the sense that, in addition and actually embedded with economic improvement, um, is the idea of a moral improvement. That not only would this make us richer, but it would make us better, uh, more morally uh, sound people. All right. So uh, the, these projects to improve the river, to create the ideal river and therefore the title of, of the book, To Create the Ideal River, which is frictionless and flows and carries goods and ideas to where they're supposed to go. Um, it is really about first uh, that economic improvement. So if we had a frictionless river that can take goods from point A to point B for less money, then this is a highway uh, that would really facilitate both domestic and international trade. But also uh, creating such a river um, is a moral improvement on what was there before? Um, creating a fast-flowing river took away the swamps, drained the swamps. As as we, we might think, uh, as the ultimate way of cleaning up corruption, it's still the way we, uh, the metaphor that we use: draining the swamps. So creating the ideal river was very much about draining the swamps and creating um, healthy-flowing. Uh, nature and society at the same time. Um, Yeah, I think I'll I'll stop there with that. But if you uh, want a bit more about that, we could we could talk about that.
0: No, I think that's that's great. Um, So from everything that you've said thus far, I'm imagining some of our listeners are probably getting kind of a James C. Scott vibe with you know these ideas of like high modernism and seeing like a, a state, and you do cite uh, Scott in your book, but you're not just sort of taking his his theory as is and applying it uh, to your case studies. You're suggesting some, you know, differences or or critiques or uh, you know alterations of the the perspective that he gets. So could you talk a bit about uh, how your work speaks to or engages with uh, those ideas from Scott?
1: Yes, um, I think I drew a lot of inf- uh, inspiration uh, from James C. Scott's work, um, particularly this idea of the legibility of of nature, right? To create na- both nature and society that are are legible in a to the state. Uh, so uh, ironing out the, the idiosyncrasies and the things that don't make sense, and uh, ensuring that a higher authority, whether that's the state or an international government, can uh, process what's going on and therefore can better govern or rule um, a piece of land or a piece of territory or a group of people. Um, in terms of what I focus on or what I take from his argument, I particularly am drawn to his ideas of ha- um, high modernism, and that's what I take when I'm talking about geographical imaginaries. I think that high modernist ideas um, really informed these projects to create the ideal river. Uh, so uh, ideas that uh, we must control the river for enlightenment rationality um, or, or for scientific rationality. Um, perhaps where I depart from James C. Scott a bit is his ideas that you need a strong authoritarian state in order to um, institute these projects, these high modernist projects. Um, And what I look at in the international sphere, there wasn't such uh, um, an authoritarian power that can sort of impose legibility uh, on the actors involved. So then I saw these ideologies as much more important in um, informing the projects that were being uh, pursued, right? Rather than sort of a top-down, strong authoritarian state being we need legibility, this is the only way we're going to get economic profit and improve improve the land. Um, this was much more of a diffuse ideology, but I argue that that, was very powerful in creating these first international organizations.
0: Okay, and then I always like to ask guests about the covers of their books. Um, and so the the cover of your book is this really cool uh, Landsat image of the mouth of a river. You've got sort of the, the delta and then this like brownish, uh, sort of sediment-laden river water swirling in with the bluish water from the ocean. It makes these cool uh, patterns to it. Um, and so the the first question that I just had was, which river are we looking at here? Because it doesn't say on the, the book uh, which river. And then, you know, I don't know how much input you got into the, the cover, but if you could say something about how the, the cover... Image reflects some of what the book is about?
1: I actually don't have the answer uh, to which river, which is embarrassing because I should really know. Um, It is a river in Canada uh, and I could look that up, Um, but um, I'm not actually entirely sure which specific river it was. Um, But I did have a lot of control over uh, the image. and I was just looking through some satellite photos. Uh, a friend had actually sent me a link to uh, NASA satellite photos of rivers around the world and said, You would really like this. Aren't they absolutely beautiful? And I thought, Oh, of course. You know what? It would be really great to have this on the cover of my book. Um, so I looked through them and found the one I like the best aesthetically um what I really like about this cover as you said it's kind of the swirling and the interlacing and the intermingling of land and ocean but I think it's very good in encapsulating what I'm trying to say about the embedded nature of uh human society and international society and nature and the environment and how uh we should see um human politics, human civilization, and nature as co-constitutive of each other. Um, and I think this image is was really great at um, capturing that.
0: Okay, so I actually just looked this up while you were talking because, you know, when I had been trying to figure it out, I was looking at, like, is this the Danube or something? Um, but once you said Canada, um, it's the Mackenzie River in
1: Canada. I found, it's the Mackenzie River.
0: Yeah, I I looking up while you were talking some satellite images of Canadian river deltas, and I found one that matches the, the shape of the, the delta there. So, so that's what we got. Okay. Um, great. So I think we've given our, our listeners a, a good idea of what to expect if they pick up this book, which I would recommend that they do. Um, it's a lot more interesting stuff in it, so I wanna now give you an opportunity to give a a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book.
1: Well, I'm unprepared for this answer, this question. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, in the dedication of the book, I do dedicate this book to the three rivers, the Rhine, the Danube, and the Congo, and it very much speaks to my effort to make perhaps these non-human agents uh, important or to highlight their importance in international politics. We don't usually see non-human agents as being key to international politics and perhaps we don't necessarily see non-human agents as being important to scholarship. Uh, So perhaps if I was to thank any, any entities out there, it would be to the Rhine, the Danube and the Congo for inspiring this book.
0: All right, I think that's great. Uh, and then our traditional last question is always what are you working on next? What kind of projects do you have uh, now that this book is out?
1: Okay, so my, my new project um, is also focuses on geographical imaginaries. but I turn to Antarctica and early spor- uh, space exploration um, and I examine how the quest to explore these, incredibly dangerous spaces is linked to a a desire to what I call complete our knowledge of the global in its entirety and to kind of envision um, our planet as a unitary whole. So perhaps uh, this vision's best and perhaps most poetically captured um, by the 1972 blue marble image from the Apollo 17 spacecraft. Uh, In this project, I hope to show um, that these geographical imaginaries of Antarctica and early space um, shape not just our understanding of the earth, but also the role of science in international politics, which I think is very topical um, as we think about the politics of the Anthropocene, but also how these imaginaries led to the negotiations ahead of the uh, 1959 Antarctic Treaty System and the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. So it is linked back to these international um, organizations.
0: Okay, well, that sounds fascinating. And if that turns into a book, I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Great. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: This has been a conversation with Joanne Yao, author of The Ideal River How Control of Nature Shaped the International Order, published this year by Manchester University Press.